Jeremiah chapter 35. Good evening. How are we? All right. I take that five out of 10, I think. (laughs) Jeremiah 35 to 39. If you are part of those that are reading with us every week, um, go ahead and read Jeremiah 40 to 45, 40 to 45 for next Sunday. But tonight we are on 35 and tonight Judah falls. This is where Jeremiah records the events of the fall of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. And it's also where we see um, a contrast between two scrolls and two kings. Scrolls being an old-fashioned form of book. So let us look at this. Jeremiah chapter... 36, I'm going to begin in. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. So Jeremiah started preaching when Josiah was the king. And Josiah was that good king who discovered the scroll. uh, We think it was Deuteronomy in the temple, read it, and the nation got all excited about God again. That's when Jeremiah started his ministry. He's continued on and he will continue on to the fall of Jerusalem. Um, So verse 3, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So then Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words the Lord had spoken to him. So Jeremiah is now recording his messages on parchment, on a scroll, and he's telling them to Baruch, his sidekick, and he's writing them on the scroll as he dictates them. So there's now uh, a record of what he is, has been preaching. And um, we don't know for certain, but that could be very much, uh, it could be very much what we've been reading is what's being recorded. It doesn't say, but it just says all the words that you have said. So very likely some form of the book we've read thus far. Um, And then what he's to do is in verse 5, we see that Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go. And on a day of fasting in the house of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. And so Jeremiah is having, since he's been banned from the temple, you guys might remember his messages that were not very nice to the people in the temple. And you remember that picture of the businessman pinching the hose off from the the orphan that is uh, on the verge of dying of starvation and trying to get water, right? And that was a picture of some of the 
injustice that the worshipers in the temple were permitting in the land. And Jeremiah told him, you guys can't do this. You can't worship Yahweh from the heart and then go outside and act in these different ways. And you're treating your neighbor without the love that you're worshiping Yahweh for giving you and all this. He's saying, you can't do that. And of course, they kick him out of the temple. They even imprison him at one point and flog him. And so he's not allowed in. So he tells Baruch, look, you're going to write these things down in a scroll. The word of God is not just being preached from Jeremiah now. It's being written down on paper now. And Baruch is to go and deliver this to the people in the temple. And here's the situation. This, it says here, Jehoiakim is the king at the moment. Now, you remember, right, that I warned you that Jeremiah gets confusing because he kind of has no chronology. He's up. Remember, we read a letter to the exiles just a few weeks ago. So they had already been defeated and gone into exile. But now we kind of go back in time and Jehoiakim is back on the throne. And we're about 20 years away from the exile. So we're kind of jumping back and forth here. And here's the situation. Jehoiakim's on the throne, and his father was disposed of by the Egyptians. So the Egyptians set Jehoiakim on the throne. Why? Because we want you to get along with us, the Egyptians. Meanwhile, the Babylonians are coming down from the north, and they're pounding, and they're getting closer and closer. And they just defeated a couple countries up off the coast from Jerusalem. And the people of Israel are now nervous and scared because they're sitting here between two powerful nations— Egypt and Babylon, and they both want to destroy each other. And guess who's in the middle? So they're panicked, and they call for a fast. They call for a seeking of God of what do we do? And so they gather in the temple, and Jeremiah and Baruch had pre-planned this moment. The scroll is ready. Baruch goes into the packed temple of people desperate to hear from God and fasting and praying. Judah's about to fall. They don't know when, but it's about to fall, and they are seeking policy They are seeking a chart, a treaty, some sort of form of life. How shall we live? How shall we survive? Tell us. And the people are seeking Yahweh. And the king is scheming with his pro-Egyptian counselors and his pro-Babylonian counselors and his we-hate-everybody counselors. So let's just fight to the death. And there's tension and there's indecision going on. And so Baruch goes into the temple And he reads from the scroll to the people, and some of the secretaries of the king hear it, and they are scared. Baruch, come read this to us privately. Oh my. You and Jeremiah did this, right? Mm -hmm. Run. Because we're taking this to the king, and he won't like it. Hide. So they hide themselves, and they take the scroll to the king, And this is what the king does in chapter 36, verse 20. So they went into the court to have the king, into the court to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishma, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then he sent Jehudai to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishma, the secretary. And Jehudai read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king, It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the pot before him. So it's cold, and he's warming himself by a fire, and Jehudai is reading the scroll from Jeremiah. So he read 
as Jehudai, verse 23, read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. So he takes a knife and he tears the scroll up section by section and burns it. And they're not afraid of the message. They don't tear their clothes. Complete opposite of what his father, Josiah, did do. Josiah in 2 Kings 22 verse 11, when they found the scroll of Deuteronomy, they weep, they lament, and they tear their clothes and they turn towards God. Jehoiakim receives the scroll of Jeremiah and rather than tearing his heart and tearing his clothes and acting in repentance, he takes his anger out on the scroll and tears that up piece by piece. And we now see this sudden shift in policy. Where Judah was once willing to submit to what God wanted to survive, the policy is now we don't need the words of God written on page will seek the wisdom of man. And so when we get to chapter 39, the end of this week's reading, you see the title there says the fall of Jerusalem. <laughs> so this is what I see is striking to us in this um, week's section of scriptures is the way that people treat, receive, or reject the word of God spoken and through paper, through page, through book. Now, Calvary Chapel has taken a very pro-scriptural stance, as most of you guys know. Um, on the screen is part of the Calvary Chapel statement of faith, and it says about the Bible that we believe We're still figuring it out. <laughs> All right. Well. Oh, this isn't it. Okay, so we believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the word of God, fully inspired without error, and the infallible rule of faith and practice. So in other words, we're getting everything from a document, from a book that is... Uh, it's without error, and it, it's got truth in it, and God, it's God's book. So the Word of God is the foundation upon which the church operates and is the basis for which the church is governed. So it, it's our king. It's our authority. We believe that the Word of God supersedes any earthly law that is contrary to the Holy Scriptures. That is 
the Calvary Chapel Statement of Faith about the Bible. And so when we hear uh, the Word of God coming from a scroll, we, we don't necessarily feel that it's our place to take a knife out and to cut out this section and to cut out that section. We get to take the message in its entirety. And so inspiration, is, that's what we talk about when we talk about this book, this, this Bible. It's the inspired word of God. And we often hear that and we're like, well, what does it mean to be inspired? Beethoven was inspired. And Mozart was inspired. But that's not the kind of inspiration we're speaking of. When we talk about the inspiration of scripture, we're talking about God's truth being authored in human words by human beings under the Holy Spirit's authority. So there's truth. It's God's truth. And it's authored by human beings and it's authorized by the Holy Spirit's guidance. And I like it. Because this is unique. This isn't, this isn't something that fell out of heaven onto somebody's lap one day. It's God's truth from heaven, but it came to us in human words, in words we understand, in words we use, in language. Authored to us. God's truth authored in human words. Words by human beings like Isaiah, excuse me, like uh, Jeremiah and Baruch, writing this out on parchment. And the Holy Spirit is giving the authority and channeling and controlling all of this. To me, that is beautiful. God could have given us something that he penned with his own finger, like the Ten Commandments. And we wouldn't even know how to comprehend it. But he chose to stoop his truth, if you will allow me to use this phrase, stoop his truth down to human words so that human beings can make sense of it. They can communicate. He communicates to us in our vernacular. And I think that that's the way God has always wanted his truth spoken about, right? Is in ways that people can hear and understand so it's a lot like the incarnation. God, his being, comes down to earth. Divinity and humanity meet in harmony right there. As God and man in Jesus goes through and begins to declare and to heal and to save. And that's what we have here. It is divine truth. And it's got a very, very human element infallible and without error, but inspired God's truth authored in human language by human beings. That's something. <laughs> so Second Timothy 3 verse 16, um, a, a, a reference we usually go to in quote theology <laughs> to talk about what inspiration is. And in Second Timothy 3.16, we're told that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. All scripture is breathed out by God. 
The Hebrew is, uh, excuse me, the Greek literally is that it's being breathed. It's God breath is what it is there in the Greek. It is breathed out by God. It is God's breath. God breathed. It's God's life and truth coming out, exhaled, and it's here on paper for us. Breathe it in. Let it do the breathing. This is God's life breathed upon it. And we can inherit and receive the life of God through breathing in his very breath. Adam was nothing but a hump of clay until God breathed into it. Genesis 2-7. And the clay became a living being. And this is what God wanted Baruch and Jeremiah to bring to Zedekiah and to the nation of Israel that's seeking for direction and life and existence and survival. I want to breathe life into my people. I want them to live my life. Zedekiah would have nothing to do with it. The Bible breathes God's life into us. Let it breathe. I feel like sometimes we are so guilty of not letting God breathe through his word. We suffocate it, don't we? We come to it with all of our problems and all of our questions and all of our confusion and all of our skepticism. And we say, I don't know about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Was that only for the pre-elected or for the people that choose to believe in him? And we, we kind of dissect it. Oh, is this passage about the rapture? And am I going to be in that? Or are we going to have to go through a seven-year tribulation? And is that passage, I don't think think that that's historically accurate or does Genesis 1 leave room for you know like we go down all these questions and we suffocate the word of God with our own breathing and quite frankly it's bad breath upon the pages (laughs) and how often are we suffocating because we're spending so much time exhaling our opinion about something that was meant to be inhaled So that's Zedekiah. (laughs) Excuse me, Jehoiakim. We are, as we allow God's word to breathe into us and is giving us life, we're becoming a 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2 and 3 says, we're becoming living scrolls or living epistles or living books. And we can go around declaring that this is God's truth and this is his word. But Paul wants us to become this. You can take this book away from me. Jehoiakim can burn it. You can mistranslate it. You can have pages missing You can lose it. Language can change to the point that this word doesn't mean what it used to mean. But when I allow God to breathe into me through his word, I'm becoming 
a living replica of it. And I become the scroll of the book. And I become the one that people are to read. Living scrolls, living books. You can't kill that. They can come and they want, they can arrest the entire Sunday night Bible study. They can confiscate every Bible. Oh no, what are we going to do? There are thousands of other living scrolls around the world. Are we living scrolls or are we dead, wordless, blank pages? And we're allowing the world to write and spill its ink upon us. Well, I'm challenged to stop, you know, breathing my yuckness upon this and start inhaling and letting God's word breathe life into me so that I can become a living scroll. And though people may never pick up this Bible, they may never even understand it or care to come to a church and look at it, they can see, they can see a glimpse of it when living scrolls get together and they begin to converse, not through language, although that happens, but through action. I begin to see this, this is not just words. I don't even understand what justification means. Paul is so confusing. It's I see that everything's being made right here through these people. Well, anyways, there's a quote <laughs> I'm going to read to you off the screen from a com- Oh, good. I was ready to stall. From a commentary. <laughs> um, this is from the introduction of one of the commentaries I've been reading through Jeremiah. And this was so captivating. I still remember it. This is about 500 pages ago. So it's still it's captivating. I remembered it. I'm like, this, I got to share this with Sunday Night Bible Study. Of course, I'm, I'm going to be saying all this, but the wording is so much more beautiful and poetic and powerful than I can put it when you guys are all staring at me and making me nervous. So it says, um, it, this text, this being Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah does not require interpretation or application so that it can be brought near our experience and our circumstance. Rather, the text is so powerful and compelling, so compassionate and uncompromising in its anguish and hope that it requires that we submit our experience to it to the text, and thereby re-enter our experience on new terms, namely the terms of the text, Jeremiah. The text does not need to be applied to our situation. The text does not need to be applied to our situation. Rather, our situation needs to be submitted to the text for a fresh discernment. It is our situation, not the Bible, that requires a new interpretation. In every generation, this text text subverts all our old readings of reality and forces us to a new, dangerous, and obedient reading. If such a subversive reading of reality appears to us unnatural, too dangerous and too costly, we must recognize that for most in the 7th and 6th centuries, it was rejected for exactly the same reasons. And the 7th and 6th centuries is referring to the kingdom of Israel. They declined the words 
because it was too dangerous. It was too risky, too costly, even too unreal. And so in some of what this says, is that to apply the scriptures to my life is not quite as important as submitting my life to the scriptures. We often try to take the text and make it fit into what does this mean for my context, but we're being called to allow our context to fit into the text, to submit ourselves to it. So there's less of this bridge building of what does this mean for over here? It's more, let me just come and let God breathe this into me. Let me be underneath it. Let it have its authority and let it work into me. So here's the question I want to ask us. Are we reading the Bible? We should. Chapter away keeps the devil away. (laughs) My youth pastor once said. Are we reading the Bible? Or are we letting the Bible read us? That is dangerous. It is very safe and unrisky for me to every day and every every day wake up and yep read oh that's cool oh that's what god is like oh that's what he's saying oh cool i wonder what paul means by that or to every week we can come together and we can talk about it and we can read it and we can say that this is what it means and or are we taking the time to pause to open the ears to open the heart and like david said lord come and search me and know me and try my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me are we letting the word once it's here are we letting this come and aim at us and are we seeing ourselves here it's so easy to like that's what sunday night bible study needs is that right there you this is for you <laughs> And we're so much slower to say, oh my gosh, that's me. There were two men who went to the temple to pray, Jesus said. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee prayed thus, you know, Lord, I thank you. It was proper, it's Thanksgiving, you know. I thank you that I am not like this person over here and that I do everything right. You know, I fast, I tithe. And then the tax collector is standing far off and he's beating his breast and he's, he's not even looking up to heaven. He's looking down and beating his breast saying, God, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. And Jesus says that the latter, the tax collector, the quote, wicked one, the less religious one, he went home right with God, not the Pharisee. But why is that? What is the difference between them? I wouldn't say the Pharisee's prayer was wicked. It's good to be thankful about some things. It's good to tithe. It's good to fast. He wasn't wrong for those things. The main difference between the two is that the tax collector knew himself. Both of them know God, and they're praying to God. But only one of them knew God and himself. How do we know ourselves? Well, we read the Bible to know God, but we also let the Bible read us to know 
our proper place before God and in this world, lest we all walk around like Pharisees because we don't know that we were once just as lost. We don't know the struggles and the mercy that we need on a daily basis. All right, so Jehoiakim, we see him. Um, We're now going to look at him and three more characters within this passage of chapters and how they react to the words of God through Jeremiah. We've seen Jehoiakim. He's the cutting scoffer. He's the person at the universities on on the liberal side of the scale. And he's he's looking at this and he's going, yeah, right, that didn't happen, snip, snip. From the fire. Oh, I like this passage. Snip, snip. Paste that here. You know, collection of quotes. (laughs) And he's going and he's being selective and he's also belittling the word of God. And it's easy for the scoffer today to kind of come to the Bible. And this even happens in some seminaries. And they come to the Bible and they kind of probe it and they look at it and they're like, hmm. Well, that's probably true. This is 75% authentic, what Jesus said. This is probably not what he said. And I don't know if there were seven literal days or whatever. And probe it that. Um, this proves my eschatology. This is totally false. I don't think God has that in plan. Like, And they, they probe at it and they start cutting at it, right? And, and then there's some on the way liberal side and they say, Oh, see, see, this verse and this verse, contradictions can't be true. So we got to cut things to make it fit and look nice. Conviction cuts. When we see ourselves here and the Bible's reading us, it cuts deep. And the scoffer like Jehoiakim is not cutting the Bible to shreds because it contradicts itself. He's cutting the Bible to shreds because it contradicts him. And when we feel it reading us and discovering us and we flip out, we say, I don't want to be cut, so take the anger out upon it. It's its fault. Find fault with it so that I can be made right in my own eyes. And that's what the scoffer, that's what Jehoiakim does. And he starts cutting away. So, hey, listen, please, 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 please be careful that you don't take your anger out upon the word of God because it showed you something you didn't like. Don't be a cutting scoffer, a Jehoiakim. You might feel better for the moment when you throw those pieces in the fire and it warms you up in your winter house. But Jeremiah says something brutal about him, God through Jeremiah. Verse 31, I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants um, um, the disaster that I pronounced against them. And so there's a bad end. And then it says, Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, and they wrote another one. So he cut one up, but they just made another one. But that's, that's the cutting scoffer. That's Jehoiakim. Now we're going to see in chapter 37, Arijah. Thirty-seven, verse 11. Now we skip forward a few years, maybe 10 or so, about a decade. 
to, uh, it's not Jehoiakim on the throne, it's now Zedekiah on the throne. He, remember, Zedekiah is the last king of Israel. So we're coming to the end here. So Zedekiah is on the throne, 3711. We see Arijah, he's the uh, imperious interpreter. The imperious interpreter. <laughs> Watch this, verse 11. Now, when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah set out from from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among the people. Now, what what had happened? Babylon had sieged the city. Egypt came up and threatened them, and they said, whoop, let's back away from Jerusalem. So there was this reprieve, very temporary, but a reprieve. And people were like, we can get out of the city and not be slaughtered. This is great. So Jeremiah is leaving Jerusalem to go to his hometown in Anatoth, which is in Benjamin. And remember how last week he purchased a field. Well, this is before that moment, so he's probably going out there under the suspicion that this field might be made available to him, so he's looking at it. But on his way out, so he's going out for that purpose, on his way out of the city, verse 13, when he was at the Benjamin gate, a sentry there named Arijah, the son of Shomiah, the son of Hananiah, seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, you are deserting to the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. You're trying to flee. You've been telling us to surrender, and you are leaving. You're joining the enemy. And Jeremiah said, it is a lie. I am not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Arijah would not listen to Jeremiah, God's prophet, the one whom the word of the Lord comes through, and seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials, and they throw him in prison. Arijah the imperious interpreter. What, what is that? You know, the person that reads the Bible and he interprets everything according to what he's looking for. It's like the watchdog. And here is Jeremiah leaving the city innocently, but the watchdog is looking for something, isn't he? I don't like Jeremiah. I've heard him say surrender to the Babylonians. And the minute you see him leave the city, see, he's deserting. Get him. That is the way sometimes, unfortunately, we read scripture or we hear it that way. And we're looking for things. Aha, I'm right. (laughs) Aha, they are sinners. (laughs) Or, or. We want to see something. We want something to be true in Scripture. And, I, oh, there's a text. Oh, yeah, that could kind of... It works. My theology stands. So we need to be careful as well of being some sort of authority. And so here's Arijah. He doesn't like, like, like Jehoiakim. He doesn't like the word of God. Jehoiakim stabs the word itself, the, the scroll, the written word. Arijah goes after the one declaring it. The prophet then, the preacher today. Let's be careful that we're not imperious interpreters, watchdogs looking to stab the prophet the preacher, the speaker, when we hear something that cuts us, when it sounds like the words are beginning to read us. Take it on something. It's him. He said it. So then we see Zedekiah, chapter 38. 
And Zedekiah is the indecisive silly putty. <laughs> the whole time that he's on the throne for the 11 years before the city falls to the Babylonians, he is super indecisive about what to do. And in chapter 37, when Jeremiah's been in prison, it says that he goes to him secretly to talk to him. A new word from the Lord yet? What's going to happen? In chapter 38, he has another secret session with Jeremiah. And it's quite fitting, actually, that Wes read from um, John chapter 3 about Nicodemus meeting with Jesus at night because this is very much what's going on. The leader of the people meeting with the outcast prophet secretly. So in chapter 38, verse 16 Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, As the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you to the hand of those men who seek your life. I'm sorry, I jumped forward a few verses. But they had met together, and now uh, he's asking Jeremiah, Hey, tell me what the Lord said. Hide nothing. And Jeremiah's like, Well, you you got to spare my life. Okay, I promise. I will spare you. I won't tell anyone about this meeting. So verse 17. So then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life will be spared and this city will not be burned with fire and you and your house shall live. Surrender. It will all work out well. But if you do not surrender the officials of the king of Babylon, uh, the city will uh, be given to their hands and they shall burn it and you will not escape from their hand. So Zedekiah is given this option and we've seen this before. Choose death, it will lead to your life. Choose to survive, you will actually kill yourself in the process. Well, Zedekiah at this point is beginning to believe Jeremiah that there's no hope. Maybe I should just surrender and yield. It might turn out better. But he can't decide. Because you see, he's got these princes in his palace on one end saying, do not give in to the Babylonians. Fight them to the death. We've got the promises of God on our side. We're going to win. It's like, yeah, you're right. And this is pure pressure group, this political pressure. And he's like, I got to make them happy. I got to do their thing. But then he, over here, he's hearing Jeremiah saying, just give up, just surrender. And he's like, yeah, but that's what my heart is saying. That's, that's, it feels like that's the word of the Lord. I feel this conviction. I feel this pull. I feel this peace towards that decision. And you see Zedekiah, it just, I don't know what to do. And by the end of the conversation, he has to tell Jeremiah, do not tell anybody we have this meeting because they can't know that I'm thinking about surrendering to the Babylonians. He is a man that is torn and indecisive and he doesn't know who he should follow or what he should do. And the word comes to him and it convicts him. And he's like, yeah, that sounds right. But I just can't give up what the pressure group around me is trying to form me into. Indecisive, silly putty. This hesitation for 11 years of what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Do I surrender? Do I not? And, and this whole, I can't make the decision. Well, hesitation is devastation. That is your answer. A siege, the surrounding of an enemy army around your city, doesn't last forever. Once it begins, there's only so much time before the army say, 
All right, destroy it. And so some of us take the scriptures and it begins to read us and we begin to hear it and it, it begins to convict us and we feel the cut in the heart and, and we begin to feel swayed in one direction, but there's pressure groups keeping us at bay. And we keep sitting here, we're going, I, I can't decide. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Should I stay or should I go? And that indecision is right there, your answer. It will end badly. And then our final character, Ebed-Melech. He's in chapter 38, verse 7. When Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Abed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. So... Backstory, Jeremiah was thrown in prison, like we saw Elijah threw him in prison. Um, Jeremiah didn't keep his mouth shut, so some of the, you know, the officials complained to the king, this guy is bugging us. And Zedekiah, being this wishy-washy, silly, putty guy that he is, it's like, okay, he's in your hands, deal with him. <laughs> and so they throw Jeremiah into the pit, this, this clay, this dampness, and he's stuck in there and he's going to die, he's exposed, um, no food. And Ebed Malek realizes this guy can't die. I believe the words he's saying. I'm going to help him. And so Zedekiah, of course, has no problem with that either. So he's just silly putty. So Ebed Malek is that obedient servant. That's how he hears the scripture. This obedient servant. And he sees Jeremiah, who's embodying the word of God here in the cistern. And rather than siding with everybody about, yeah, his message is stupid, we don't like it, is where he is, we can't hear him anymore, keep it shut, he says, this ought not to be, I need to help this man. I need the words he's declaring. I believe that God is speaking truth through him. Ebed-Melech lets the Bible read him. It doesn't happen, he's like, cut the scriptures, throw Jeremiah in prison, well, I don't know what to do. None of those options for him. It's very obvious. When he lets the word of God read him, he says, I know what I must do. So here's a nation, as we move towards the close here. Here's a nation that is on the brink of distinction. They're going to die. They need life. Sometimes we wonder too, are we on the brink of distinction? Well, Jesus made many comments about heaven and earth passing away before his word passes away. The Psalms 119 say that forever is God's word firmly established in the heavens. And we see in history a couple of examples about the perseverance, the endurance, the tenacity of God's word. I mean, for example, there's William Tyndale in the 1500s. And he was the guy that put the first Bible in English print for the church to read. 
But the Pope didn't like that. So the authorities that be in England at that time sought for a way to take down William Tyndale. And they discovered that there's a merchant named Packington who was more than happy to help out with this procedure. What the authorities did not know is that Packington was a secret friend of William Tyndale's. And so they paid Packington handsomely for this job so that he would purchase all of the Bibles from William Tyndale and burn them. Hand them over to the authorities and the Pope would have fun at the bonfire. Well, that happened. But Packington, who was paid handsomely, gave that money to Tyndale who then published more Bibles with that money than he ever had to begin with. And so there's one of those examples of, ah, it's on the end, it's on the brink of distinction, and it's going to be over. And at the very worst of it, it multiplies, it spreads. And then there's Voltaire, that French philosopher in the 1700s, who is famous for noting and saying that within a century, the Bible will be extinct. It will not exist anymore. And the great part of the story is that when he died, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his house (laughs) to publish their Bibles and spread them around the world. And it gets better. (laughs) In the early 1900s, Voltaire, a first edition copy of Voltaire's works was going for, oh, about 19 cents or so. Meanwhile, England purchased from Russia an ancient 4th century manuscript of the Bible written in Greek by hand. They purchased that for millions of dollars. Voltaire was really smart about the Bible. (laughs) And I tell those stories from history because this is what we see in Ebed-Melech. We see people who were kind of skeptical about what Jeremiah had to say and about the scroll that he had written. And they did their different things to it and reacted differently towards it. But Ebed-Melech realized, if we need to survive, if we want life, these are the words that breathe God's life into us. And I need to let this God read me. So how does the story end for Ebed-Melech? Well, in chapter 39... Verse 18, 39, 18, I will surely save you. He's talking to Abedmelech. I will surely save you and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. And so when we choose to submit ourselves to the word of God, the enduring word of God, we become an enduring people. That when the Babylonians have their way with Jerusalem, 
and the politicians have their way with our freedom. And the list goes on. When people have their way, it is those that are in submission to the way that God reads us through his word that are the ones that are going to endure. They're the ones that are going to survive. Jeremiah and Abed-Melech, when the Babylonians made Jerusalem fall, those are the two that were given the options to live. They were given freedom. So, I would like to ask us to allow the Bible to read us. To submit our situation to the book, not submit the book to our situation and try to find some cute application. Not to be Jehoiakim, not to be Elijah, not to be Zedekiah, but to be more like Abedmelech. Let, let the scripture read you. Open this up and listen to it. Don't race through your reading. You're reading your next five chapters this week, right? Don't, it's not a race. The faster I read it, the more time I have. (laughs) Listen to it while you read it. Give it a chance to read you. Give it a chance to breathe. Make it your prayer. Build it into your life. Dangerous? Yes. Hard? Absolutely. But as we surrender to it, we find like Jeremiah and Abedmelech, there is freedom. As the one worship song sings, that today's surrender is tomorrow's freedom. God knows how we need to live. So let his word read us that we may know where he's taking us. Let his life come into us and we will breathe it in and we will let it read us and we will then know the path of life that we can survive the destruction around us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much. For giving us a course of life. You have given us our policy while we are in the turmoil and decision of what to do as the world pulls at us from two ends. God, we submit ourselves, we surrender ourselves to your words. And we allow them to cut us where it hurts most. Because we know that today and that hardship is going to lead us to tomorrow's life. So Lord, make us humble, we pray. Submitted to your scriptures, we pray. Amen.